I think I'm, yes, I am on. Good. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8 this morning, so you can turn there. Matthew 8, and we're going to look at the first 17 verses this morning. So once you're at your spot in Scripture, then I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's perfect word. These are the words of God. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And may God bless the reading of his word. So, we did it. We got through the Sermon on the Mount. What took Jesus probably half an hour or an hour took us, what, six weeks? But that just shows how compact Jesus uh, can preach. So the Sermon on the Mount is over, and we're now moving into another narrative portion of Scripture, kind of following the life and the ministry of Jesus as he moves along. And this is a good opportunity, as we're kind of shifting scenes, to zoom out again and look at the book that we are preaching through. To look at the way that Matthew has organized his gospel and the information in it. We said at the beginning, and it's worth reminding ourselves again, Matthew, is appealing to a Jewish audience of Christians, has a self-conscious desire to show the complete unity of the scriptures. The harmony between the Old and the New Covenant era. And the substance of all the promises in the Old Testament have come to fulfillment, they've come to their termination point in Jesus Christ. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school, how Jesus is the perfect mediator. The Old Covenant terminates into the New Covenant in much the same way, and one way to picture it is the way an acorn terminates into an evergreen tree. It doesn't mean the acorn is annihilated, it means it's finally found its highest and fullest purpose And it comes to full fruit once it had reached that termination point. 
So the movement from, uh, from old to new covenant is like an acorn to uh, an evergreen. And so you'll see instantly that there's continuity and there's discontinuity. An acorn doesn't look like an evergreen, but clearly there's an organic harmony between the two. There's similarity and difference. But ultimately, there is complete and perfect harmony. For Christ to show himself as the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament, he walks through the same pattern that Israel and God's Old Covenant people walked through. And we've seen some of this before, and we'll see some more today. And this isn't because, and we, it, this is important to get the order right, to see what of primary importance is. This isn't because Jesus showed up, read his Old Testament, and then said, I should be like that. Rather, Jesus was the Savior from before the foundation of the world, and so the whole history of God's old covenant dealings with the people of Israel was as a type and a foreshadowing of the kind of person that Jesus was going to be. You see how this works? What's controlling what? So the Old Testament story went as it did to look forward to Jesus. It's not as though Jesus is trying to uh, reenact what happens in the Old Testament, although it certainly uh, is that way in a sense. But the Old Testament is there to point us to Jesus ultimately. He's the controlling paradigm. The flow of the book of Matthew actually, if you follow it closely, it actually mirrors the flow of the Old Testament quite well. So where, uh, where Matthew starts out with the genealogy and an origin account of Jesus, this mimics Genesis, giving us a history and a genealogy and an origin account. And then, as Matthew moves on, uh, Jesus more closely follows Israel again, uh, and so this book becomes like the book of Exodus. There's a flight from Egypt, and then Jesus going up onto a mountaintop to give law following the pattern of Exodus. And that's what we just saw uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on the mountain, and now it's time for redemptive history to move forward again. And so now, as Jesus comes off the mountain, as we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proceeds to, uh, to, to carry out ten actions, or ten miracles, of which we've seen a few this morning. And this is a kind of conquest of the land, which closely mirrors uh, Joshua, uh, and the conquest of the land there. As Jesus' ministry moves on further in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see increasing pressure uh, that's placed on Jesus, leading him to speak in parables, in, in wisdom parables, mimicking, again, Psalms and Proverbs, and the wisdom literature that point us in the Old Testament to Christ and to his kingdom. And as this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees reaches its boiling point towards the end of the book of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus pronouncing woes and predicting destruction of the city, the doom of Jerusalem. And that relates to the pre-exilic prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, reminding him of his coming return. So you see, even the way Matthew organizes his information of the life and ministry of Jesus, you see this Old Testament pattern carrying through to show us the harmony and the unity of the Scriptures. In sum, we see that Christ stands in as the second Adam, the true seed, that Abram was looking for, the, the final Israel of God, and it is fitting, therefore, that he retraces the steps of these former patriarchs and covenant heads. Jesus recapitulates, which just means re-heads, a cap you wear on your head, right? If you're decapitated, your head is lost. So recapitulation just means Jesus is the final head uh, that recovers uh, the story and the disaster from these previous covenant heads who did not fulfill God's calling perfectly. So Christ relives the story, but he does it right this time. 
And we, of course, want to be good readers of the Bible. And so this frequently involves zooming in and zooming out. We have to be able to do both and see all the contours of the text. One example I thought of how this works is, let's say you're uh, in school, you're in junior high or maybe high school, and you get assigned the book Animal Farm by George Orwell. Has anyone heard of the book Animal Farm? Right? Great book. And my grade 10 teacher made me read it when we moved to Oregon, and I'm glad he did. If you read the book Animal Farm, and then you did a book report, and your book report reported that you had just read about Mr. Jones's Manor Farm uh, that had talking animals in it, your teacher would know that you know how to read sentences. If your book report says, this is a story about Stalin and the Russian Revolution, you know how to read a story. See the difference? You can read sentences or you can read a story, but to do one well necessarily moves into the other. We have to understand the sentences, but we have to understand the story as well. And we want to do both when we read our Bibles. We want to preach verse by verse. We want to look and be honest at the little pieces of the text uh, and how sentences are structured and, uh, and do that. But then we also need to zoom out periodically and say, well, how does this tie into the big picture? We need to do both if we're going to be faithful Bible readers, if we want to understand the theological meaning of history, of what's happening in the Bible. And so here we start in the verse 4 verses. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was healed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so this is the first of Jesus' ten actions, or his ten miracles, is to heal this man of leprosy. And to help us understand it a bit, why don't we try to put ourselves as best we can into the story? Leprosy isn't really a hot topic in our society. We've learned how to deal with it largely as a medical condition. But Tim's law reading this morning uh, helps to paint a picture of what it would have been like to be a leper in this time. Leprosy was not just seen as a disease, it was that, but it was seen as an uncleanness, a defect, a personal problem. Okay? So immediately, if you have this, you are unclean. You're an untouchable. You automatically belong to a lower class of people. And we know how this works even today when we encounter people who look or seem different than us. We pretend we can't see them. They become invisible somehow. These people were frequently driven from mainstream society and were looked down upon. And imagine if you've been a leper for some years. Imagine the emotional and the mental harm of all these people around and nobody can see you. No one can touch you. No one can look at you because you're unclean. And leprosy, because it was a flesh-rotting disease, uh, also produced an incredible stench. So these people stunk. No one wants to be around them. No doubt it's an unfavorable position. This was seen as contagious, and so people would have to announce if someone unclean was coming, unclean, unclean. And there's this constant reminder that you're unclean, you're untouchable, you're unwanted in society. People have to yell when you're coming down the road so that they can step out of the sidewalk and avoid you. If you're a man that maybe had a family and you're off living in some unclean leper camp, imagine the trauma to your masculinity of not being able to have a purpose or providing for your family. Or perhaps if you're a woman 
and you've got babies at home. Imagine the shame and the guilt and the frustration of leaving that, being unable to take care of your little children. Think of the shame and embarrassment of being so poor because you're out of work and you're in some camp outside the city. No one can see you. You smell horrible. You're unclean. And then there's a special provision in God's law because you're so impoverished that there's a special lesser sacrifice that you offer than mainstream society. And so if we can get ourselves as best we can with our social setting into this culture to understand what it would have been like to be a leper, imagine going through this battery of tests that Tim read about this morning in God's law. Because leprosy was seen as an uncleanness rather than just as a normal disease, this is why these tests were done by priests and not physicians. Because this had to do with inclusion or exclusion from corporate worship. You were either clean and granted pass, or you were excluded from temple worship. And hopefully, we can see the emotional weight, the mental weight, of a very difficult picture. And we can imagine lepers waiting on the verdict from the priest to see if they were cleared to get back into society, or if they would remain outsiders, looked down upon by everybody. The news would be life-changing. And it's in this context that Jesus comes down from a literal mountaintop experience with a large crowd following him. Jesus is enjoying a great deal of popularity at this point. The cool kids are all surrounding Jesus, and he comes down off this mountain, and this untouchable, smelly, social outcast comes up to him. Think of human behavior. You're a rock star. Do you have time for a guy like that? No, you don't. You can't even see him. But Jesus does trouble himself with a dirty outcast, defying every convention we would think about if we were in that spot. And If we understand the plight of a leper, maybe we understand his desperation and despair reaching out to a savior. This leper is working with a good deal of faith and at least partial understanding. We don't know what he all understood. But there must be at least some understanding of who Jesus is because he makes his appeal to Jesus. He knows Jesus can make him clean. He knows that much at least. And while the Old Testament law permitted for a priest to announce a man clean, he had no power to make him clean. He could only announce what the reality was, but he had no power to change the reality of the situation. And so there's something unique here about Jesus in his priestly role. The leper understands the sovereignty and the power of Christ. Notice what he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There's no question in his mind about Jesus' power to do this. All he is curious about is if Jesus is willing to do it. He knows he has the power, but Lord, are you willing? Lord, is it your will? Just like when we pray, the leper doesn't know if his request is in alignment with the purposes of God or not, but he asks regardless. And Jesus shows his compassion not only by healing the man, but by touching him. Think of that. What is the value of human touch at this point? People can't even look at you, and now the God of the universe touches you. What's that worth at this point in time? 
We know from Leviticus 15.17 that even people who touched a leper became unclean. Okay? This is why people avoided them. And now the great high priest, the temple of God, not only declares this man clean, but he makes him clean and grants him immediate access. Right? The, the, the temple was God's symbolic presence on earth, and now God in the flesh is here. And this man has been granted instant clearance by a priest and instant access to the very presence of God. The man is immediately clean. And we may wonder at Jesus' further instructions for him to stay quiet about the whole thing. And while pushing back, the the remnants or the the reminders of the curse is certainly part of God's mission on earth. The root of all these problems, like leprosy, is sin. Not necessarily because this man sinned, but because sin is present in creation. And when miracles are understood in light of uh, validating God and his messengers... And as events which do push back the curse in the form of disease, death, and demonic possession, they make perfect sense. Some people have noted in these uh, ten miracles of Jesus that there's uh, kind of three groupings. One showing Jesus' dominion over nature, one over uncleanness, uh, and one over uh, the demonic world. And I think that's a fair way to see some of this. Unfortunately, though, some people don't see the meaning behind miracles. They only see the excitement. So it becomes like a circus act to some. And to gain a large following of miracle seekers would, in fact, hinder and not help Jesus' mission. And I think we have to fill in the gaps here a little bit. But we know from other places in Scripture where people are just coming for bread and circuses, Jesus sends them away. Because the point of miracles isn't excitement. The purpose of miracles is a theological statement about the state of the world and what Jesus came to do. So Jesus does not want a crowd of groupies following excitement and circus acts. He wants a crowd of followers who knows what these things mean. Jesus honors the law and fulfills it by instructing the man to go to the priest and to give his gift, just as Moses had instructed. So Jesus is not violating uh, the law of Moses here. He's telling this man to follow it through all the way. And the healing of this man does paint a fairly vivid picture of ourselves. We've seen the trauma of what it would have been like to be a leper, but what about us who have the leprosy of sin all over us, like rotting flesh, like uncleanness, like shame, as we do? Sin has made all of us poor beggars, properly feeling the weight and the guilt of our shame. And God would be perfectly justified in not seeing us, in walking past us, and leaving us in our pitiful state. But out of his incredible mercy and compassion, he has descended to heal us with his touch. And through Christ, God has made us clean. He's removed our shame and granted us access back into his presence. And if you were the man who was healed of leprosy, the new life that you would have received would be startling. You would have literally a new lease on life. You're back in society. You can operate as a normal person once again. And so when Jesus sends him back to give his thank offering, this wouldn't have seemed, I'm sure, like a big burden. He knows he's doing this out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving for uh, what Christ has given him. And so it should be when we send our own thanks back to God, if we see ourselves in the story, to understand what we have been pardoned from, our uncleanness that has been taken away from us uh, through the ministry of Christ, when we give our thanks back to God, whether that be in the form of tithes 
or the use of our time and our resources, or even as we put sin to death in our lives, that also ought to be a response of gratitude and thankfulness or sanctification. And so we see the radical nature of guilt and the radical nature of grace. And if we see that, how can that not spill over into thanksgiving? Our good works are not something that we do to impress God, but rather they are the overflow of genuine thanks for what God has done. And if we don't see the gospel in its stark condemnation of our sin and how shameful we really are, we will not see the glories of what Christ has pardoned of us. And when we see that in stark relief, how can our lives not just bubble over in thanks to God? Just like the leper. Moving on in verse 5 through 13 is the account of the centurion. He says here in verse 5, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So you maybe have heard and maybe know a centurion, you see it right in the very word, century, uh, was an officer in the Roman military who was in charge of a hundred men. And given the more remote surroundings of Capernaum, it could very well be, it's probably likely, that this would have been the highest ranking Roman official in the town. And in this exchange, we see another important aspect of Christ's ministry in the exchange. It's clear that the centurion also has some knowledge, at least, of who Christ is, and he comes to him with a reverent faith. The centurion knows that all it will take will be a word from Jesus and his servant will be healed. And it's also worth noting that while this man is used to being in charge and giving orders, he is not at all demanding of Jesus. He comes as well as a beggar. He's quite the opposite of bossing Jesus around. He doesn't command, but he takes a posture of need. And despite his high position, he understands that he is not worthy of having Christ come to his house. And again, we're left guessing a little bit. Why does he not see that he is worthy of having Jesus in his house? He's in terms of social rank, clearly higher on the ladder. And there's a few possibilities here, and maybe there's an element of all of these. One may just simply be that he really understands who Christ is, and there's a full reverence for Christ as being God incarnate. Another possibility is that the centurion recognizes that conquered people rarely love their captors. That's rare. He understands that Jewish people will not love the Romans because they have been conquered and humiliated by them to a large degree. And so maybe there's an understanding of this dynamic, that he doesn't feel right having Jesus over. One may be a courtesy, and just acknowledging that the trip wouldn't be worth it, because if he's dealing with the God of the universe here, Jesus doesn't have to be in close proximity to this person to heal them. It could very well be a recognition of Christ's sovereign power over all his creation, to command all of it exactly as he pleases. And lastly, he may, as a ruler among Jews, he may have been 
uh, aware that in the law of Moses, he knows that for a Jew to enter his house would make that Jew unclean. And perhaps he doesn't want to burden Jesus with that. And so it's a courtesy in that sense. But his combined actions of calling Jesus Lord, of recognizing his sovereign rule over creation, even from a distance, and of recognizing the supreme worth of Jesus compared to his own sin and uncleanness, despite being the one who was recognizably the leader of the people of Capernaum, all this causes Jesus to marvel, it says in the text. Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. This man seems at least to get it. He acknowledges, he's a man in authority, but he understands that Jesus can command his creation however he wants. He knows what it's like to rule over a hundred men, and he just said, well, do this and it happens, and do this and it happens. Jesus likewise has that authority, and I think there's a hint even in this exchange that this man recognizes he is under the authority of the king of the universe. A centurion must bend the knee to the king of heaven and earth. And Jesus marvels. And then Jesus goes on to say something important about his own ministry in verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in one short statement, Jesus describes both the supreme satisfaction and eternal joy of heaven, as well as the eternal misery and torment of hell. And he more explicitly teaches something that we've already been seeing hints of as we've gone through uh, Matthew's account of Jesus' life, and that is that of Gentile inclusion. The centurion is commended for his faith, and it is his faith that makes him a true son of Abram. We've been discussing covenant heads and how that all works in Sunday school. Uh, And what does it mean to be uh, in Abram? What does it mean to be in Christ and so forth? And we know that not all who descend genetically from Abram are true sons. And not all true sons descend genetically from Abram. It's a pattern, but there's exceptions even in the Old Testament era. What grafts one in or out of the covenant family of God is saving faith in the Lord Jesus. The true and final and perfect and eternal covenant head. So Jews who don't place their faith in Christ are grafted out, to use the language in Romans, and Gentiles who do place their faith in Christ are grafted in. And together, they are one people of God. And we've seen this concept already introduced even in Jesus' own genealogy, in his birth narrative. How many Gentile women are included here that you wouldn't expect to be in there? And they're not particularly good Gentile women either. It includes prostitutes and people who act like prostitutes. It's not a bunch that we would necessarily want in our own families, but God incorporates them in the story he's telling. We've also seen the Magi demonstrating a degree of faith when they come to the promised Messiah, when they make their journey, despite not being uh, ethnically from Israel. And so Jesus makes it as clear as can be here that the dividing line of in and out is saving faith and not your background. And this isn't a new teaching. When Paul teaches the same concept in Romans, he actually borrows from the prophet Isaiah to make his, or Hosea to make his point. He quotes Hosea 2.23, where the prophet says, And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And Paul 
picks up on that and elaborates on it in Romans 11 to talk about the Gentile inclusion in the kingdom. And this all works actually remarkably for the benefit of God's kingdom. The, the, the firsthand uh, rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people allows for Gentile inclusion. And Paul goes on to say, and their inclusion is actually going to be the catalyst to create jealousy among the Jews for them to be in mass grafted back in. So this is all serving kingdom purposes. The hardness and the softness is all serving God's kingdom purposes. So in the wisdom of God, even these people that are rejecting the gospel of Christ up front ends up in an expansion of God's kingdom that includes the Jews uh, and Gentiles together. And here in this case of the Gentile coming to Jesus, just as the leper knew that Christ could heal him, so the centurion also knows that Christ could heal his servant. Neither one is doubting the power of Christ to do this. All they are asking is if it is his will to do it. Is it his intention? And in both cases, Christ is perfectly willing to heal. And the centurion's servant is healed from disease. And so there's similarity and dissimilarity between these two healings. Both of them involve a miraculous healing. But despite that common point of contact, many details are different. In the first case, the leper is low on the social scale while the centurion is high on the social scale. The leper receives a personal touch while the centurion gets a remote healing. The leper asks for himself while the centurion asks for one under his care. The leper is Jewish and the centurion is Roman. And these details all start to paint a picture of how varied Christ's ministry is and how wide the net of his gospel is. And we know the gospel of Christ is for rich and poor, for slave and free, for Jew and Gentile, for male and female. And then it goes on in verse 14 through 17. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And so more texture and more variety is added here in this account. Just as the leper goes and pays his gift out of gratitude, so Peter's mother-in-law moves to start serving Jesus after her healing. The overflow of gratitude and a willingness to serve is the only fitting response to Jesus' redemptive work. And then it says, later more were brought, and Jesus casts out demons. And Matthew goes on to comment saying this is a fulfillment of, Romans, or of Isaiah 53. And why don't we stop and turn there just for a minute to see uh, what Isaiah all sees here. Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And this is the key verse that Matthew comments on, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, one of the, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge he shall, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. We're probably all familiar with that passage of prophecy. It's a very clear picture, hundreds of years before the coming Christ, that Isaiah gives us. And our first thought, and this is absolutely true, don't want to take away from this in any way, shape, or form, uh, is to see this uh, as applying to the cross and to the forgiveness of sins. And that is absolutely 100% non-negotiably true. But Matthew points an additional element out here. Matthew paraphrases Isaiah by saying he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Illness and disease, uncleanness and demon possession are all the result of the curse from sin. So for Christ to be in the position of the true mediator, of the final covenant head, two things must be needed. One, he must perfectly fulfill every demand from all the previous covenant heads who had gone before him. So everything that is demanded of Noah, of Abram, of Moses, and of David must be executed perfectly by Christ so he can win those covenant blessings that God promised to those men. See what's happening there? Jesus has to do it perfectly to win those covenant blessings. But because covenant curses were also pronounced on those men for disobedience, somebody has to bear the weight of that. So even though Jesus fulfilled these covenants perfectly, still the weight of past disobedience has to land on somebody. Somebody has to die for this. Someone has to pay for what David did. For what the men of old did. Every covenant had its blessings for obedience and its curses for disobedience. And because Christ is the mediator standing in for both sides, he must finally secure the blessings and exhaust God's anger at sin. And this is simply another way of talking about the great exchange of the gospel, where our sin gets put on Christ and his righteousness gets put on us. And so we have a picture of Jesus taking personal responsibility for the hardships of others. It's not his fault, but it is his responsibility. He is a perfect man, the perfect covenant head. And he takes hardships for others. He doesn't just take our sin upon himself, but he takes the consequences of our sin upon himself. And so in a very real way, Jesus also had laid on his shoulders leprosy, and paralysis, and fevers, and cancer, 
and heart disease and demonic possession and widowhood and abandonment and fathers who fail us and friends who betray us is all put on Jesus together with the sin that causes all those things. And speaking of Christ's role as mediator, the ancient church father Gregory of Nazianza says this, and I am in agreement with him, that when it comes to Christ, what has not been assumed has not been healed. For Jesus to heal something, he has to, in a very real way, take it upon himself to exhaust it, to end it, to heal it. And so the reason why Christ gets involved in these cases is because they all demonstrate his commitment to pushing back sin and the curse that comes with it. And in his first coming, in his earthly ministry, he sets in motion and he paints a picture of the process that is finalized at his second coming. We sang about it this morning. I love that song, Is He Worthy? Because even the musical progression, it just builds, right? See, there's tension, 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 tension. And finally, full resolution. And I can hear that, and I'm not musical. I can hear that happening. Okay? And there's lyrical progression, and it's saturated in language from Revelation. These people realize, after scroll after scroll, nobody can open this. And you know your Old Testament history, and all of these guys fail. Adam failed us. Noah failed us. Abram failed us. Moses failed us. David failed us. Everyone's a failure. Do you think after thousands of years of that, you're ready for a champion? You're ready for a hero to do this? That's the resolution in that song. And that's the resolution that we read about at Christ's return in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I've been in conversation with a number of people in the last week that have real heartbreak in their life, real disappointment from people who have sinned, who have let them down. And this is Jesus' way of saying he empathizes with that. He knows it. He's committed to pushing that curse back. That's what he does in his ministry. That's what he sets in motion when he comes to earth. And that's what he will finalize when he returns. So the finished product that we read about dictates what the earlier steps are going to look like. And so again we see that Jesus' miracles aren't just a circus act to draw attention to himself. They're not meaningless magic tricks. They're events with deep theological meaning. Okay? As conservative Christians, we often emphasize the literal truth of the Bible, and we absolutely have to. It's absolutely essential. But as we do that, let's never forget the meaning behind it. Let's never forget the romance and the symbols and the theological meaning of these actual events with actual people in actual history at an actual place. There's meaning. We don't just live in a world of facts. We also live in a world of meaning. And God himself dictates the meaning. These early miracles of Jesus are early pictures of what it is like for the light to start breaking up the darkness. 
and to anticipate that final day when the darkness will once and for all be finally and fully conquered. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for sending your Son. Lord, thank you that there's provision for our sins even before we fell. That before the foundation of the world, you made your Son to be the the Lamb who takes away our sins. You made him to be the King who would reign forever over his creation. Lord, and as we look at Jesus' ministry on earth, I pray that we would be deeply impressed by how real, how earthy these things are. Lord, they are literally historically, physically true in a material world, and yet they are full of meaning. Lord, give us eyes to see both. Give us eyes to read the sentences and to understand the story. Lord, and give us eyes to trust you when you say how the story ends. Every tear wiped dry. Mourning and crying are no more. Lord, I want to pray for those here this morning, especially that are awaiting on medical tests or who have children who have walked away from you or, Lord, who have other problems with parents, with siblings. Lord, man will let us down, but you never will. Lord, I pray that we would see properly that you are our father, that Jesus is our older brother. Lord, help us to believe, help us to put our trust, help us to walk humbly with you, knowing that he is king and the darkness does not stand in light of the brightness and the radiance of his glory. Lord, help us to walk in light of that this week. Commit each person here into your hands. Lord, be with us, guide us. I pray that we would live for your glory as we head out to the week ahead of us. We pray this all in the perfect name of your glorious Son. Amen. stand as we sing.
I'm thankful for people who listen to the sermon. I was instructed, I said, an acorn into an evergreen instead of a pine cone. I trust you'll all forgive me and the word picture still works. (laughs) Then I'll give you the charge. The miracles of Jesus give us a taste of the age to come when we will enjoy heaven and earth completely free of the remnants of sin. While sin opened wide the gate to a world filled with disease, uncleanness, and demonic activity, Christ has established a ministry that has his enemies retreating back into the darkness because they cannot stand the light. Christ shows us a window into the age to come, an age in which every tear is wiped dry, where crying, pain, mourning, and death will be distant memories of a bygone era. In his first coming, Christ starts the long war of subduing his enemies, pushing them and their works of darkness back through the same gate of sin that they entered. At his second coming, he will lock this gate forever. Those who have resisted him will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that will continue forever. But those who receive his healing work by faith remain forever to enjoy table fellowship with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this week, as we consider the significance of Christ taking not only sin onto himself, but also all of its ugly consequences, let's be sure that our response is one of thanksgiving like the leopard of being under authority like the centurion, and of service like Peter's mother-in-law. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And go in peace. Thank you.